Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Luke chapter 8. Uh, we're going to start in verse 4. We're going to read that in a minute. Uh, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 4. We're at a point in Luke where uh, Jesus' teaching ministry really uh, comes onto the scene as we uh, he begins to teach in parables. And uh, this particular parable is put at this point in Luke uh, for a certain reason. Uh, what we've seen up to this point is kind of a shocking uh, ministry style and uh, response to Christ. Uh, so Jesus has presented himself already as the Messiah, the one who has come to Israel and uh, fulfilled the promises. All the hope has shown up in Christ. Uh, that's what Scott was reading uh, earlier this morning. Uh, but the response to Jesus is surprising in that the religious people in Jesus' day, uh, for the most part, have rejected him. They've been interested, they've wanted to listen to him, but at this point, uh, they're already scheming to figure out how they might uh, catch him in his words and uh, put him to death. And the other surprising part of Jesus' ministry is that the Gentiles are embracing it. They're embracing uh, Christ's ministry. Some of the most unlikely People, some of the most unreligious people are the ones Jesus says are getting into the kingdom. Like we saw a couple weeks ago, the sinful woman who is likely a prostitute, or uh, the tax collectors. Remember when Jesus uh, went to a party with Matthew, a tax collector, who <laughs> Jesus shows up at this drinking party. And uh, people are shocked that he would uh, be there with someone like Matthew, one whom he's called to be his disciples. So how do we make, how, how, do, how do we understand what's happening? Jesus is preaching wherever he goes, and the response is mixed. The response is even um, surprising. Uh, so when you, uh, if you look at your notes there, you see the underlying question that I think, uh, this parable that we're gonna look at today, uh, seeks to answer. What do we make of the mixed responses to Jesus' ministry? I mean, some could look at it and say, well, if he's the Messiah, he's kind of a failure. For he's got a few that are following him. The crowds are interested in him but only a few that actually seem to be all in. So some might look and say his ministry is a failure. How, do, how are we to understand what uh, they have seen? Who's getting into the kingdom? Why are those people getting in and some of the religious people not getting in to the kingdom of God. 
And before we go to the text, I just want to help you feel how practical uh, this text is. And I want to do that by uh, sharing a couple stories. Some of you maybe have heard these, but when I got to go to Africa with uh, Troy and uh, visit Mark over there, uh, Mark and Parker Phillips, who are missionaries in Niger, uh, we got to go from village to village and just share the gospel in villages where the gospel's never been. Uh, these are remote uh, tribes in the Sahara Desert. And we went by village after village after village after village. And I'd say, so has there ever been a missionary to this village? And Mark would say, no. <laughs> the next village, no. The next village, no. To the point where he just said, Sam. <laughs> There has not been missionaries down this road where thousands of these people live, and it just devastated my heart. Uh, but the first day we got there, and I'm thinking, so what are we going to do? Well, literally, he's like, grab your Bible. He's going to be my interpreter. And the mission trip was to walk into villages, go to the elders of the villages, the imams first, Tell them why we're there. Tell them that we have a message from God. Tell them uh, that we want to share that with them. We've come in peace and love and, uh, and that, that we're here to preach good news. And uh, the first few years of, of their ministry there, um, they, they kind of asked permission if they could be in the village, but then they started saying, what if they say no? In Acts, the disciples boldly proclaimed the good news to those who need to hear it. So the first day uh, into the village, uh, we go and talk to the elders, which I'm really nervous at this point. And Mark is talking to them in Zarma, a language I don't understand. And then Mark says, all right, uh, they want to hear the good news that you've come uh, to share. So we sat down on this mat under this grass hut, and I began, uh, Mark began to translate as I began to share the gospel. Uh, the beauty is, is you have time there. They're a culture that isn't driven by tasks, but they're a people culture. If visitors come in, they're willing to listen, and they have time. And uh, so I got to share the gospel with these uh, six elders, one of whom at the beginning I thought, well, God's really working in his heart, but as I be continued to share, I just saw him kind of get distracted. But there was one sitting right next to me that I wasn't really making eye contact with, but towards the end, after I was sharing what Christ has come, how Christ has come to forgive sin, uh, and, and I've already built up that there is no good person. They could admit that. They could admit that there was sin. I'd ask them, what's your, what's your hope then before a holy God? Because they knew God was holy and they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, we hope God has mercy. And I said, well, if God's good, He won't have mercy in light of your sin 
unless there's a sacrifice. So shared Christ, what Christ can do for sinners, and realize the gentleman next to me has tears running down his face, and the other five at this point were just kind of seemed disinterested. But this guy said, his name is Muhammad. He said, I'm 63 years old. If you had not come into the village today, I would have never known how sins could be forgiven. Well, I don't know if we got a picture. I think I got a picture here. So here's Muhammad. And if you go to the next slide, you can see Troy with Muhammad. That's one of the other elders sitting on our, to the right of Troy there. And so one out of six seemed impacted by the message, by the gospel. And I thought, this is amazing. <laughs> it's just the morning and already a, a Muslim has come to see the hope of of the gospel in Christ, that his sins can be forgiven. Well, then we went uh, walking on, and we walked by a group of about 20 young men, probably between 18 and 30, I suppose. And they're kind of an intimidating group. A lot of them had motorcycles. And uh, we were walking by, and one of them yells something to Mark. And Mark stops, they start talking, and and Mark says, well, we're, these guys said, what are you doing here? A lot of them have never seen someone who's white. And they're curious what we're doing in town. We don't look like them. And Mark told them that we were here to share the good news of God's Word. And they said, well, why are you going to walk by us? Aren't you going to talk to us? So uh, we stopped. And uh, this is an illiterate culture. Uh, they've never read the Quran. They've, uh, they don't really know what's in it. They repeat prayers every day, uh, uh, and follow the kind of the externals of the, uh, Islamic faith. Uh, but really, uh, they don't know, uh, what they believe very well. And so we share the gospel, uh, with them. And Troy shares his testimony, and then I kind of go through the gospel. Well, Mark had told us, you know, there's a when you get to the point where you say Jesus is the Son of God, there's going to be a brew, uh, kind of a brouhaha, because they know one of the prayers they repeat is God has no son. And Mark says, when that happens, I'll just kind of take over for a while and then explain that what that doesn't mean, they think that means that God had sex with a woman, with Mary, and this is detestable in their minds. And so he's like, I'll need to explain some of that. Well, I got to the point where God sends his son to be a sacrifice. And this guy, the most intimidating guy in the group that had cuts on his face like tribal cuts, and he kind of looked like, I don't know, the most intimidating to me. He gets up and he starts going around the circle. He starts talking. And obviously, I don't understand what he's saying. And uh, he gets done, and, and I think I know for sure what happened, just exactly what Mark said. But Mark said, well, you won't believe this. 
But here's what this guy just did. This guy just pointed at me, being Mark, and Troy, and he went around and told everyone here that if you receive Mark, you got to receive Troy. They come together. If you're going to believe in God, you have to believe in God's Son. They come together. And I said, well, have they ever heard this before? So he asked, and no, they've never heard this before. Well, then the guy starts to go around and start saying stuff again. <laughs> well, Mark says, you won't believe this, but he just started going around the room and saying, it's not enough that you believe in God's Son in your head. You have to trust Him with your life, like in your heart. He had never heard the Gospel before, and yet he's like one step ahead of me in sharing it. At this point, first day on the mission trip, I'm, I'm thinking, unbelievable. This is absolutely unbelievable. And uh, so I went on to share the cost of following Christ in that culture. It's almost immediate. They'll be disowned from their families. Their businesses that they run won't function because no one would buy from them. Uh, when they get baptized in that river... Basically, their life's over the way they knew it. And this is in a communal culture. So, we're walking away from this, and I have all these thoughts of emotions, just <laughs> the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit to save is amazing. I can't believe these people are willing to listen. Why isn't there missionaries here? <laughs> There's an openness to listen. All these thoughts going through my mind. And I'm already trying to figure out how these gentlemen are going to be brought into the church. But the next day, or I talked to Mark later that day, and I'm like, isn't it amazing that God saved these two guys? And Mark said, well, we'll see. And I said, well, what are you talking about? We'll see. I saw the tears... I saw them say, in, you know, Muhammad say in front of the other elders that his sins can be forgiven. He knows now. And the other gentleman, I heard him preaching the gospel before I was even preaching it. So the next day, we're walking through the village, and I can't wait to see, actually both their names were Muhammad. There's about six names for men in that culture. Ibrahim and, and uh, Arune, which is Aaron, and a lot of them are Muhammad. Well, so the, the younger man, the man on the motorcycle the next day, were walking, and sure enough, here he is. And I can't wait to see him. And as he makes eye contact with us, he kind of looks away like this. And I'm trying to like say, no, remember me, you know, the white guy who's... <laughs> and he didn't want anything to do with us. And I went to Mark, I said, what's going on? And he says, well, this is what, this is what happens a lot. He got persecuted day one after his profession. Right now, he's in the time of counting the cost whether it's worth following Christ, only time will tell 
whether he was saved yesterday or not. We have to let time go. And I'm thinking, but I saw the emotion. I saw something amazing happen. And for us to understand seeing something like that, we need a parable like Jesus told. We need to understand what salvation is. We need to understand uh, the fruits of it. And the other thing we need to understand is our position as the preacher. Because Cephas, one of the partners uh, with Mark over there, I asked, so do you think they got saved? And he says, why do you want to know? He says, why do you want to know that? You're not the one who saves. We just share the gospel. He may or may not be saved. Why do you need to know? You don't have to know that. In fact, to know that might be dangerous for you. And it was wise counsel because he understood 1 Corinthians 13.5 that says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who sows the seed is nothing. The one who waters is nothing. God's the one that makes the seed grow in a person's heart. And that principle, I think, is in this parable as well. So let's read it together. And then we'll consider uh, three causes of hearing loss when it comes to the gospel in understanding three implications for those of us who sowed the seed. Luke 8, starting verse 4, And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from the town, uh, town after town came to him, and he said in a parable, now, I just want to say here, you can look at Mark 4 and Matthew 13 to kind of see the fuller accounts of these. The crowds were so big that Jesus had to be put in a boat and brought offshore so he wouldn't get smothered so that he could get a little distance and preach to them. So that's uh, the picture you need to have in your mind. He said, and, and so he began to teach them in a parable. Now a parable is a story or an illustration of sorts that is thrown alongside a spiritual truth to help us understand it. Jesus taught this way a lot. And it, and the second reason we're going to see for a parable is actually to uh, conceal truth to those whom God is judging. So here's what he says in a parable. Verse 5, A sower went out to sow his seed. Now here's what you need to picture. Here's how farmers sowed small grain. They grabbed a handful of seed and they walked and they would broadcast it like this. A little bit different farming methods back then. He went out to sow a seed, and he sowed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Now, if you have a plowed field and a sower needs to walk on it, 
There's going to be a path where uh, you walk. Uh, when people travel through the country, a lot of times, rather than ruin the whole field, they would walk along a path uh, between fields. And he said, some of the seed fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. So there's like a double uh, hindrance on the seed. Uh, we'll look at that more in a moment. Uh, the trampling and the birds were uh, harmful to it. Look at verse six. And some fell on the rock, on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Now, here's what you need to picture: not soil with little rocks in it, but there is places where there's layers of bedrock with just a little bit of soil over top. So as a plant would try to go down and find moisture, it would hit bedrock, and if it got very hot, it would uh, die quickly. Uh, This was really deceptive, though, because seeds that fell on this shallow soil with rock underneath would spring up much more quickly than good soil because the nutrients would try to go down into the root, no place to go, and it would shoot the plant up quickly. And it says, as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up, and it choked it. Some fell into good soil, uh, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here's where I think we get the weight of this parable. He's talking to people, be careful how you listen to my words. People are are responding to the preaching of the kingdom of God in different ways. And he's saying, be careful how you hear. Do you have ears to understand what I am telling you. And there were some that really wanted to understand. Look at verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you, I want to emphasize to you, so it's a specific group, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And we're going to go on, talk about this in more detail later. But Jesus is saying, for those who desire to understand, press into my teaching, ask what does that mean to you, you're going to be given the answers. But there's others out there that I preach in parables, he says, uh, as a form of judgment on them because their hearts are hard. Their idolatry is so great that when they hear the gospel, they reject it. And especially Israel, who's been promised uh, the Messiah, they've been given the Scriptures they start listening to Jesus' preaching and Jesus is saying, I teach in this way as a judgment on them. Isaiah prophesied, we're going to look at that in a moment, 
that God was actually going to shut their eyes and close their ears because of the hardness uh, of their hearts. So it's kind of surprising as we hear Jesus give his reason uh, uh, for the parables. And then in verse 11, he describes or he answers what the parable means. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So there's a sower that's sowing the Word of God. The Word of God in mind is the good news of the kingdom, what Jesus has been preaching. This is the way Peter uh, also talked about the Word of God. And in 1 Peter 1.23, he says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. He's saying you were born again through a Word that had life in it. And it was an imperishable seed. In Romans 10.17, he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. The way people get saved is they hear the gospel, the good news that Christ brought in Himself. He's going to a cross to die on the cross in the place of sinners to take their sins. The only way a person can be saved is to hear that message. That's why missionaries need to go to Africa and to the ends of the earth because a person cannot be saved apart from the gospel seed. And then he says, the ones along the path are those who have heard this good news. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So what he's saying is the first group have hearts that keep that seed up on the topsoil. It's so hard that the birds come and steal it away and the birds represent the devil. There's a spiritual war uh, going on. So there's two things at place, a hard heart and a spiritual war with the first soil. And notice it says the word from their hearts, which means the four soils are representing the hearts of the hearers. There's four types of hearts that are hearing the Word of God. Look at verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the Word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in the time of testing, they fall away. So there's a group of people that hear the Word of God at first, they get all excited, and they're thrilled, and they might even be the most uh, emotionally uh, responsive group that hear this, but when times of testing comes, when suffering comes, there is no nutrients deep down in the heart to get them through that, and they wither away. And then verse 14 says, as for those who are, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, 
But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. This group has the right profession, but their hope is anchored in temporary pleasures of the world, and they cannot give their lives to God and to others because of that. Because their hopes are in the temporary pleasures of the world, they can't give their life away. They got to go get the pleasures. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. The second group, suffering was the cause of their uh, falling away from Christ. The third group, pleasures, kind of the opposite side of the spectrum, were the reason why they proved unfruitful. The first three soils produce no crop, no fruit. True salvation produces the fruits of salvation. And we see that in the fourth soil. As for that in good soil, they are those hearing the word, hold it fast. That's key. In the NLT, it says uh, they cling to it in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Mark's account of this same uh, uh, teaching, he says this about the four soil. They are those uh, who hear the word and accept it. Matthew says they hear the word and understand it. So they don't just hear it. They cling to it. They accept it. They understand it. So here's what I want to look at, what I think we can learn from this parable. And really, it's in two areas. Uh, It's evaluating our hearts in in understanding uh, the, the response to Christ. And it's also in regards to us as evangelists. I think this is, gives practical help to the sower and definitely to the hearer as all of us want to be the ones who produce fruit and sh- prove to be truly saved. Um, and so uh, the, we're just going to progress as we see in the notes here. Understand three causes of hearing loss, three causes of rejection of the gospel. First, those that fall upon the path. This is the heart that is hard. It's been trampled underfoot. The seed, the gospel has been trampled underfoot in our day and age, and I think in their day and age also, is there were those who believed certain ideologies about the world. Therefore, their hearts were clinging to them in an idolatrous way so that when the gospel was preached, it hit that hard soil and it was trampled on and 
those ideologies were, were so uh, hardening to the person's heart that Satan could easily snatch it away. Now, I can tell you as I share the gospel, you can recognize these people just immediately. They don't want to hear any more about the good news because it goes against uh, whatever ideology this day and age has presented. Uh, uh, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's, he's the one, the world system is in rebellion to God's Word. And there's some whose hearts are so rooted in that system and so hardened that as soon as they hear the Gospel, uh, it gets snatched away and there's no hope of growth. Uh, let me give you some texts that, that speak of a hard heart like this. Uh, Hebrews 10.29 How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Now, there's some that hear about the grace of God, hear about Christ, and just trample it right under their feet. In Psalm 95, 7, uh, the psalmist speaks of those who have hard hearts. He says, For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when Israel was led into the wilderness, they were taken out of Egypt. God was saving them, bringing them to a promised land, but they camped at a place where there was no water, and they begin to say, uh, God has taken us into the wilderness to kill us. And they hardened their hearts against God. They, they were immediately saying, God is not being good. And the psalmist warns, be careful that you don't do that. One of the terrifying aspects we see in the Bible is there's a point where a person is given over to their hardness of heart. A person should never be okay mingling with sin in their heart saying, I'm just going to do this for a season because the deceitfulness of sin can build to a harder and harder heart to where you get to the point where there is no more uh, place in your heart for repentance and faith. We're warned about this. Proverbs 28, 14, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Uh, John MacArthur says something I think really interesting. Uh, he says, the heart of such people is a thoroughfare, constantly trampled and packed down by the sins that traverse it. It is never plowed by conviction, self-examination, honest assessment of guilt, and repentance. It is as callous to the sweet reasonings of grace as it is to the fearful tremors of judgment. Interestingly, and this is interesting, such hard-hearted people are often not atheists, but highly and seriously religious people. 
A prime example was the Jewish leaders of Christ's day. So firmly shut were their minds to the truth of God that they hated, opposed, and ultimately killed His Son, the very Messiah they had longed for. Close quote. Don't comfort your soul with the fact you're religious. That you have a certain type of morality or that you go to church. The question is, is has the Word of God been so considered by you that you've let it till up the hardness of your heart and humble you that you might be fruitful, that you might trust Christ. The second cause of hearing loss is uh, displayed in the rocky soil. This is those who fall away when they suffer. This person receives Christ probably thinking that their life is going to be easier because of it. There's a lot of people who believe the prosperity gospel, which is not the gospel, which promises people an easy life if you will follow Jesus Christ. Therefore, those who receive that gospel uh, will be really excitable in this newfound hope because they think their life's just going to get better immediately and that they're going to be protected from the suffering that other people have to deal with. So then when the suffering comes, it's kind of like I've been ripped off and they let go of Christ. Those who who follow this way of thinking, the prosperity gospel, it, it, I remember my professor saying, it's like a revolving door. People are coming in all excited, but then they're leaving disappointed and broken and spiritually abused, being promised things in this world that God never promised. Jesus promised in this world, you'll have trials, troubles, and tribulations. And He said, take heart, I've overcome the world. So there's a way we can hear about Christ, not hear correctly, and think that it's going to protect us from suffering. Uh, what we see here is that the rocky soil person, their profession sounds good, but it takes time to find out whether or not they're a true believer. They have to go through suffering. Because the person who has their roots into the true gospel, suffering comes and their life is built not on the promise of easy circumstances, but built on eternal promises that will come uh, when Christ returns. The built on promises that in the midst of trials, I'll not for leave, or leave you or forsake you. Uh, I'll never forget an illustration Ray Comfort gave of a uh, uh, man uh, who was getting on a plane and he was told by this evangelist, came up and said, hey, before you get on this plane, I tell you, tell you what, put on this backpack. It's going to be so great. It's going to make your trip 
amazing. You need to put it on. You'll, you'll, you'll just love your flight if you wear this backpack. So the guy puts it on. He gets on the plane. He's got to lean forward. His back begins to hurt. People are looking at him, kind of laughing. Look at that guy. He's got a backpack on, sitting on a plane. Stewardess hits the backpack, spills coffee on him. He gets so frustrated with his backpack, and the guy who told him he's going to make his flight better, he takes it off, throws it on the ground, and says, I hate that thing. And I hate the one who told me he's going to make my flight better. And then he says, well, rewind that scenario. A guy gets on a plane, plane takes off. An evangelist comes up, a guy excited about this backpack, and says, hey, put this backpack on. We're going to get up there 40,000 feet. The the engine's going to go out on the plane. There's a parachute in there. It's your only hope, a survival. Back hurts. You think he cares? He doesn't care. People are laughing at him. He doesn't care. Coffee gets spilled on him. He doesn't care. Because the gospel he believed, the good news of the backpack, he knows there's a parachute in there, and he knows the plane is crashing. There's some who preach the gospel telling everyone, hey, you need to receive Christ. He'll make your life great. Well, guess what? When suffering comes, that person heard a false gospel and they'll leave it. But when you tell a person the plane's crashing, you're going to stand before God in your sins. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. You cling. You have what you need in the midst of persecution and and suffering to remain. Uh, Perseverance is the mark of true salvation. And... That's why Mark told me, he says, you know, we don't know if this guy's saved or not. We got His life's about to get really hard, and we'll find out if it was a supernatural working of God in his heart or not. Um, I'll just give you a few verses that teach this point. Colossians 1.22, Paul says, He has now reconciled us in his body by the flesh of his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. So he's saying these promises are true for you if you endure to the end in faith. The writer of Hebrews says, Uh, Hebrews 3.14, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Matthew 24.11 says this, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says in the end there's going to be a lot of false teachers saying they're preaching Christ, but they're false prophets. The love of many will grow cold, but in the midst of that sort of suffering, there's going to be those who endure it to the end, and they prove to be the good soil. Uh, Just a kind of a side note, joy and emotions is not a good marker of salvation. 
This man received the gospel in joy, with joy, but the interesting thing about the New Testament is it's actually mourning that is maybe a better emotion to point to uh, when it comes to salvation. Uh, just to give you an example. Uh, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, their sinful state. James 4, 9 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. The mark of the true believer might not be amazing emotion that everyone's impressed with, but it will be a steady, enduring trust in Christ. Um, John MacArthur writes, the faith of true believers in contrast is not crushed by trials, but strengthened by them. Trials are a good testing uh, tester for the believer. Uh, so let's look at the third soil. Um, the thorny soil. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. This is the rich young ruler. He wants to know what he must do to inherit our eternal life. Jesus knew that he was self-righteous, and he said, well, keep the commandments, and he listed them off. He said, uh, or he says, which ones? Jesus, Jesus lists five, and he says, oh yeah, I've kept all of them <laughs> in, his, in his own pride. And then he says, all right, go sell all you have and give to the poor. Jesus knew his idol was uh, the riches of the world, and he went away sad. He didn't follow Jesus because he had to hang on to the idol of riches. This is a scary thing for Amer the American church. How many in the American church fall into this third category? They have a good profession. Their theology might sound pretty good. But their life, their heart, is carried away by the pleasures of this world. And by the way, if you set your heart on the pleasures of this world, you're going to worry all the time too. Because none of those are a good foundation. Uh, the Bible teaches that this world's passing away along with its desires. These pleasures are fleeting pleasures that the world has to offer. But Christ is offering eternal pleasure. And He's calling us to, if we have ears to hear, to hear. Not merely say, yeah, I'm following Him plus Jesus. It's kind of like, my life is ice cream and Jesus is the cherry on top. That person's not a believer who says, this is my pretty good life and I'm just going to add Jesus on and maybe I'll get in at the end. The person who has truly been saved realizes the emptiness of this world. It's not that they don't enjoy anything in this world. They seek first the kingdom of God and they know all those other things will be added to them. They're willing to die. 
I'll, I'll give you an example. First Timothy 6.17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future, are storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So he's saying the rich, tell them to be careful. A lot of people set their hopes on riches. God gave them to you for you to enjoy, not to build your life upon. That's not the anchor of your soul. If it is, your business can be gone tomorrow. If you anchor your soul in your spouse, they could be gone tomorrow. If you anchor them in your children, they could be gone tomorrow. These thorny soil professors believe it intellectually, but then go build their life on the things of this world and set their hopes and affections there. And unfortunately, will be people who are always selfishly trying to get more for themselves and worrying about how it could all go wrong. They're not in a position to be fruitful. A person who's set on a firm foundation is able to risk, is able to give their life away knowing the eternal promises uh, they have. So understand the Three causes of loss of hearing. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm preaching the gospel. Yeah, a good portion of people are not coming into the kingdom, but it's because this is what their hearts are doing. The fourth soil hears, receives this seed. It's a good soil that's been told, uh, uh, tilled up by the conviction from the word and and is ready for the good news of the gospel uh, in their life. And we got to quickly go through the three implications for evangelists. It's real simple. In light of uh, the mixed results Jesus got, we must not tamper with God's Word. Here's one thing you learn from this parable. There's nothing wrong with the seed. People are tempted if they don't get the results they want by trying to be faithful with the gospel and God's word, that they need to go into church growth strategies and all these different kind of man-made ways to try to make a church grow. What you learn from this parable is the seed was good every time. You don't go try to change or tamper with God's word just because people aren't believing. In fact, uh, this is... Uh, this is what uh, the way Paul says it. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Paul's saying, hey, 
We don't change the gospel to try to get people to like it or get more people in. We just, the gospel's good. And the reason why it's unfruitful is the hearts that are receiving it. Second, we must trust the sovereignty of God because Jesus says, to you it's been given the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now those who are Jesus' disciples cannot point to themselves as being better than anyone else, but that by the mercy of God, their hearts were receptive to the gospel. The Bible says that God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. In Philippians, it says God uh, uh, preached the gospel so that God may grant them repentance. If you're trusting Jesus Christ today and you've been given eyes to see the mystery of the gospel, which is uh, uh, how Christ fulfills all these Old Testament promises that He is your only hope, that is by the sovereignty of God. And for you as sowers, just preach the Word. Paul planted Apollos waters. God will give the growth. Our job is to not produce results. Our job is to preach the Gospel. And when someone believes, we give all glory and praise uh, to the God of mercy that opens hearts. Third, Cast the seed everywhere. We're told to go into every nation and preach the gospel. We're not to go try to figure out which hearts are hard, which ones are good. I mean, it's deceptive. The thorny soil is is deep soil. It's plowed up good. Looks just like, you know, you can't tell that there's these thorn weeds in there. We're told to preach the gospel to every person on the face of of the earth. And what I want to leave you with is the is the most important question we can ask is is the gospel tilling up the soil of your heart making it ever more fruitful or are you hard of hearing? The gospel's offensive in 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 this way. The Bible teaches and Jesus taught that we are evil. We don't have any inherent goodness in and of ourselves. Paul says, what do you have that you haven't been given? (laughs) Even if you have a good quality, that is by the grace of God. Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does my Father in heaven? Just in the most casual way, Jesus calls us evil. Is your heart so hard that that makes you angry and upset and say, I don't believe that? I believe people are basically good. Has the ideologies of psychology in the modern world fooled you into thinking the man's basically good so that when you hear the gospel, you just say, I don't want anything to do with it? The gospel teaches man is sinful and broken. And the good news is this, is that God in His love has sent a Savior. That's the only hope. Can you admit that there's nothing good in and of yourself, that what you need is a Savior to provide 100% of your righteousness? 
There's two things you need to get into heaven. To live in the presence of God, to have Him as your Father. you got to have perfect righteousness and no sin. Jesus came, lived a perfect life. His life, He lived to create a gift. He came as a baby, lived 33 years to present this gift of perfectly living under the law. And He went to a cross, and on the cross, God put your sin and my sin on on Him. And because God is just, and He promises to punish sin, God killed His own Son on the cross. But because in the Son there is life, death could not hold Him. He, By the love of God, He sent His Son. The Father lovingly sent His Son for you and I to bear our sins and then raised Him from the dead, gave Him the name that's above every name so that the person who believes by faith realizes Jesus is the backpack. No matter what happens, the plane's crashing. My only hope is clinging to Jesus. The person who has faith, the great exchange happens. Your sins are put on Jesus and paid for, never to be punished again. Jesus' righteousness is put in your account. It's the great transfer. Jesus lived this perfect life, white robe, not one blemish on it. He takes off your dirty, filthy robe of sin, puts it on Himself, and gives you His perfect righteousness. My prayer is that your hearts realize this is our only hope. Father, I pray that we would be a people who abide in Your Word, that cling to the Gospel in the midst of suffering. And Lord, I pray we're a people that cling to the Gospel in the midst of pleasures all around us that are vying for our hearts. Lord, I pray that our hearts would cling to the truth in the midst of a world of of ideologies that run contrary to Your Word. Lord, I pray that we would honestly assess our hearts and discern which soil we are. Lord, show us mercy and grace. Amen.